Good morning, everyone. It's 9.01, time to begin on this beautiful Lord's Day. It's nice and sunny. It's a little bit cool for some of us. It's invigorating, right? But uh, we're thankful that the Lord has brought us out tonight, or this morning, to, to worship Him and to serve Him, to have the privilege of being under the teaching and preaching of His Word. And we uh, want to start this morning with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for this morning, this Lord's Day. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy in, in saving us and bringing us into a relationship with you, reconciling us through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead, confirming that his work was complete, that it was sufficient, and that through his uh, atoning sacrifice, we have been made complete in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation by which we've been saved. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And we ask that he would teach us through your word this morning, that you would give us hearts to receive your truth with uh, humble hearts. And may we um, seek to apply the word in our lives as your Spirit works in us to to, uh, bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you for this time together, and may Christ be exalted. May his name be lifted up among us. We pray in his name. Amen. All right. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And here in this final paragraph, this final section of chapter 1 of Colossians, we see the Apostle Paul's philosophy of ministry. Here we get an, an insight into Paul's perspective on the ministry. And in him we see a model for ministry. And so this passage really pulls together in one place all of the necessary elements for faithful ministry. The ministry is a topic that was very dear to the Apostle Paul. He never lost sense of his wonder that God would call him into ministry. And so Paul felt compelled to carry out his ministry to to its fullest extent. You'll notice that in this passage, let me go ahead and read it, and then I'm going to pick out a few things before we actually get into the meat of the, of the passage. Verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, that we may present every man complete in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. 
Now you notice as I read through these six verses that there are a number of first-person pronouns that Paul uses. He says, I rejoice, I do my share, I was made a minister, I might fully carry out the word of God. We, the collective first-person pronoun, we proclaim him so that we may present every man complete in Christ. And then he goes on to say, for this purpose, I labor. This was a very personal uh, sharing of, of his heart to the Colossian believers. This is Paul's personal perspective on ministry. And, and he often spoke of his, of his ministry when he needed to establish his authority and his credibility. That was Paul's purpose for speaking of his ministry here in Colossians chapter 1. As you recall, Colossians was written in part as a polemic against false teachers. And it was essential to, for Paul to defend his authority as an apostle of Christ, and as a spokesman for God. Otherwise, the false, teacher, false teachers would have just dismissed what he had to say as simply his own thoughts and opinions. Having started this epistle with a statement of his apostolic authority in verse 1, he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Paul now gives a detailed look at the divine character of his ministry. Now, before we begin in this passage, I want to go back one verse to verse 23, the very end of that verse. Paul, in speaking of the gospel, he says, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I was made a minister. And then he repeats the same phrase in verse 25. I was made a ministry, a minister. Let me just start with a definition of what that means, what it means to be a minister. The Greek word is diakonos. That might sound familiar to you. It's it's where we get our word deacon from. It speaks of service rendered to someone else. It has the basic idea or a basic idea of a waiter or more specifically a busboy. Someone who picks up the dirty dishes. The guy who serves the waiter. And Paul says, I was made a waiter. I was made a deacon. I was made a busboy. I was made a server. It's a word that designates a very common duty, a very mundane duty. And in a very real sense, it's an unskilled job. Diakonos speaks of its commonness. Paul also refers to himself with another word that we find a number of times at the beginning of his epistles. He calls himself a bondservant of Christ, literally a slave of Christ. The word is doulos. It means a slave He's a slave of Christ. It refers to submission, to submission. And so diaconus, he's a server. Doulos, he's submissive in that service. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1, he refers to himself using a whole different word from these two that we've looked at. He calls himself a servant of Christ, and he uses the word huperetes, and it means in, an underrower, underrower. If you've heard of that term, hooper means under, and the retes means to row. It comes from the verb to row. He calls himself an underrower. That's the low-level slave in the bottom of a Roman ship. A ship called a trireme. A trireme is a ship. It's a wooden ship. It has three rows of men who are pulling oars below the deck, and the underrower was the one at the bottom of the ship the very lowest in the ship. 
He couldn't see the light of day. He couldn't see where he was rowing. He was usually chained to his oar. And there would be hundreds of these men rowing these huge ships across the Mediterranean Sea. Many of you are familiar with the movie Ben-Hur. He's shown as a slave, an under rower. He was chained to that oar. And so Paul saw himself as a, in the common role of a submissive servant and a very lowly under rower. And as he looked at his life, he, he defined himself in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 as, a, as an earthen vessel, a clay pot. We have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. Common, under orders, lowly. Acts twenty nineteen. he reminds the Ephesian elders of how he was with them and how he was serving the Lord with all humility. How he had served the Lord in, in this way with all lowliness of mind. He had a lowly view of himself, a lowliness. And that's why this terminology is chosen to describe a minister, a servant, an under rower, a slave in all humility. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, not only are we the slaves of God, but we're the slaves of others. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake, your slaves for Jesus' sake. So we have this treasure in earthen pots, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's the whole point. We should never take credit for any results or any success as we serve in the ministry. It's all the glory of God, isn't it? We're simply the clay pots. Well, that's the definition with which I like to start. What is a minister? And Paul says, I was made a minister. Now let's go back and look at the passage here. And we're going to see eight aspects that essentially make up Paul's view of the ministry. And this is the outline from John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Colossians. So they all start with a letter S. There are eight of them. I'm going to kind of give them to you real quick here, and then you'll hear them throughout um, the passage as we look at it. Eight aspects. The first is the source of the ministry, and then the spirit of the ministry, the suffering of the ministry, the scope of the ministry, the subject of the ministry, the style of the ministry, the sum of the ministry, and finally, the strength of the ministry. First of all, the source of the ministry. Look at verse 23. At the end of this verse, as I already mentioned, Paul concludes a very important section in chapter 1 on the glory of Christ, the deity of Christ, the the majesty of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, as well as the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the one who is preeminent, the one who has first place in everything. All of that is in verses 15 through 19. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago with uh, Brian Fox leading that, that teaching. And it was a wonderful look at who Jesus is. And then he writes about the gospel of reconciliation in verses 20 through 23. And last week, Mark Stevenson did a wonderful job going through this passage for us. How... how He made peace, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross and how we who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind are now reconciled to God through Christ's substitutionary death. It's a passage on the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel. 
And then Paul at the end of verse 23 says, of which, referring back to this glorious gospel concerning Christ, I was made a minister. And then he repeats that in verse 25, I was made a minister. He didn't make himself a minister. He didn't one day wake up and say, hey, I I think I'll become a missionary and a pastor and and a preacher and a teacher. He said, I was made a minister. Paul was a recipient of an action done to him. But what made him a minister? It wasn't his education. It wasn't his ability. It wasn't his giftedness. It wasn't his personality or his training. The source of his ministry was God himself. God made him a minister. Now let's look briefly at his former life before Christ in his own testimony because becoming a minister of Jesus Christ was not what Saul of Tarsus had planned for his life. On the contrary, he was the consummate religious Jew. He was climbing the corporate ladder of Judaism. His credentials were impressive. His reputation was impeccable. He says in Philippians 3 that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, I mean, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And although he was born in Tarsus, he was brought up in Jerusalem. He says in Acts 22.3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And he says in Galatians 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And it was that zeal that led him to persecute Christians. We first meet Paul under his Jewish name, Saul, as Stephen's martyrdom. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, And the witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He eventually became a leading persecutor of the church. Acts 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He says in Acts 22 that he persecuted the way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And as he described that testimony before King Agrippa, he says in Acts 26, So then, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That's Saul of Tarsus, isn't it? But while his 
journey led him to Damascus. He was confronted by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and his life was eternally changed. Acts 26, he testifies, While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he heard the name that he never would have thought in a million years would be that name. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also to things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That was Paul's own testimony. He didn't volunteer to become a minister of Christ Jesus. He was appointed one by the Lord himself. I was made a ministry, a minister. The source is none other than the sovereign God, the Lord himself. I was made a minister. It's a sovereign act of God. And you know, as we are called to be the children of God, we're also called to serve him. And that's all by God's sovereign choice and his sovereign call on our lives. It's all of the grace of God. Paul often testified of that marvelous fact that God had chosen him for ministry. We see it in Romans chapter 15. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a, as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering to of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul was eager to affirm that it was God who gave him that ministry. God was the one who gave him the ministry of reconciliation. God was the one who put him into the service of Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for, this, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the ministry came to Paul by God's gracious hand. He didn't deserve it. He didn't earn it. And all of us, as I said earlier, have been called by God's grace and mercy to serve God in one capacity or another. As God is sovereign in calling men to salvation, he's also sovereign in calling them to service. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, which are, an, which are simply an enablements for the service to which we're called according to God's sovereign will. And like Paul, our responsibility as believers is to be obedient to that calling. When we serve Christ in ministry, whether it be in sharing the gospel with, with the unbeliever or ministering by word and deed to 
a fellow believer, it's a mercy of God. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's all of his grace. It's an honor. It's a privilege. And so we should rightly approach the opportunities that God gives us with humility, with submission, and with lowliness of mind. Now, going back to our passage, I know I read a lot from the book of Acts. Colossians chapter 1, it says, He was made a minister by God's sovereign call, and then he viewed his ministry as the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your behalf, or for your behalf or for your benefit, verse 25. Stewardship is the word akoinomia. It's a compound word made up of oikos, which means house, and the word namas, which means law. He's a manager of a household. It means to manage a household as a steward of someone else's possessions. He was given this stewardship to manage. The steward had an oversight of the other servants and handled all the business and all the financial affairs of the household for the owner, but none of it was was belonging to him. And so a steward was in a position of great trust and responsibility. Ministry is a trust from God. And we know from Paul's own testimony that he sought no glory for himself. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required as stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. He had a God-given task, and he was obligated to fulfill that task. There's probably perhaps no stronger language than what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 about Paul's sense of the divine call on his life from the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I am under compulsion. That's strong language. But woe is me. That's even stronger language, isn't it? He operated under the knowledge of a divine mandate. I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. For whose benefit? For the church, right? The body of Christ. The benefit of believers. The church is the household of God. And so Paul, as a steward of this household, he was to serve the Lord and, and manage that household. God has given to each member his, of his body spiritual gifts. Like I said earlier, all of us are to, are to serve as stewards in the household of God. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And elders have a very special stewardship. In Titus chapter 1, Paul writes, the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable to you. So every Christian will one day give an account to Christ for his stewardship. All of us will give an account for how 
we are faithfully fulfilling the ministries that God has called us to do. So the source of ministry is God. All right, the, the next seven are a little bit shorter, so bear with me. It's actually getting warm in here, isn't it? So maybe we should open the door. No? Okay. Number two, the spirit of ministry, verse 24. Let's go back to verse 24. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings. That's an odd statement to me. I rejoice in my sufferings. At face value, how many of us are able to say, I rejoice in suffering? I love it. Can't wait to have more. It's an odd statement to me. I rejoice in my sufferings. But that's the spirit of ministry. As challenging and demanding as ministry is, uh, it was never intended to be an unbearable burden, a drudgery, or something that we dread doing. Paul's attitude of joy should be the spirit of ministry for all of us as Christians. But the sad reality is many Christians and even some pastors have lost the joy of serving the Lord. They grudgingly carry out their responsibilities. They've got solemn faces and somber attitude. and They're characterized by discouragement and by resentment and by anger and by bitterness, by obligation, disillusionment. Made me think of uh, the message we heard a couple of Sunday nights ago on losing your first love. I guess that was Sunday morning from Revelation chapter 2. Perhaps they've left their first love. But what was Apostle Paul's spirit of ministry? It was joy. Christian joy that is internal. It's deep down joy. It's not superficial. It's not giddiness. It's not... It's not silliness, but it's genuine inner joy from the heart. And Paul knew all about suffering. He knew all about sorrow. He says in Romans 9, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness, uh, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separate from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He lived his whole life bearing a profound burden uh, of sorrow, and that burden was for his own people, the Israelites, the Jews. But that never stole his joy in ministry. He says, I rejoice in suffering. Second Corinthians chapter 4, he says, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That kind of sorrow, that kind of suffering, he unfolds all through the book of 2 Corinthians until you get to chapter 11. Then he lists all the things he went through in serving Christ. And yet in the midst of all that suffering, in the midst of all of that sorrow, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. By the way, when Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, where was he? He was in prison. From prison, he writes the book of Philippians. And what does the book of Philippians talk about? Joy, right? Paul learned to be content in every circumstance. And when we get down, when we get discouraged, when we get feeling sorry for ourselves, we have to preach to ourselves this truth. I am who I am by the grace of God. 
I deserve nothing, and yet I have everything in Christ. And here's a key principle to glean from this. It is humility that produces joy. Humility produces joy. We have to remind ourselves of our Lord Jesus, who said, or speaking of him in Hebrews chapter 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus never lost his joy in ministry, even when he was facing the terrible reality of the cross. You see, Christian joy is internal. It's not based on circumstances or life situations. Paul was sometimes discouraged by his circumstances, but he maintained his joy. Whatever his circumstances, he never lost confidence that God was in control. And I think that's the key. We need to focus on the Lord, not on the things around us. Joy is not based on circumstances. It's found in a deep-seated confidence that God is sovereign and that God is in control of everything, in all of creation, in all times, in every event in the world, in every event in our own personal lives. Joy is generated by humility. And people lose their joy when they become self-centered, when they become self-focused, when they think they deserve better than the circumstances or or deserve to be treated better than what they're getting. But that was never the Apostle Paul's problem at all. By the way, the, the word or the name Paul, it means small or little. It kind of gives you a picture of what he thought of himself. He was conscious, conscious of his own unworthiness. Facing the possibility of martyrdom, he, he writes in Philippians chapter 2, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, he and Silas sang songs of praise to God, Acts chapter 16. Because he believed he deserved nothing, no circumstance could shake him from this confident joy in God who was in control of his life. So when someone asks you, how are you doing? We should rightly respond, better than I deserve, right? Circumstances, people, worry, all of those can steal our joy in the ministry. But humility, devotion to Christ, and trust in God protect that joy. Jesus said in John chapter 15, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be what? Full, full. That's the spirit of the ministry. Number three, moving on, the suffering of the ministry. Again, back in verse 24. In my sufferings for your sake, he says, I rejoice. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The third aspect or the third element of ministry is suffering. And this suffering is what would be called vicarious. It's on behalf of others. So the source of the ministry is God. 
the spirit of the ministry is joy, and the suffering in the ministry is vicarious. It's on behalf of others. He says that he suffers for your sake. And so to emphasize that joy is, is independent of circumstances, he tells them that he's rejoicing, suffering for your sake. Suffering refers to his present imprisonment. He was in prison. He was in Rome when he wrote this. But he could rejoice even in spite of that situation because he always viewed himself as a prisoner of Christ, not the Roman Empire. And this suffering is vicarious. It's for the church. It's for the cause of Christ. It's for the cause of the gospel. The early church considered it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. Acts 5.41, the apostles, it says, went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. To the Philippians, Paul wrote, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Have you ever considered that suffering is a gift from God? That's what he says here in Philippians 1. It's been granted to you to suffer for his name. Why was suffering a cause for joy? Well, we see five reasons at least that the New Testament gives for suffering. First of all, it brings us closer to Christ. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And suffering is uh, in the cause of Christ. It it brings us closer to him. It gives us a better understanding of what Jesus did in, in dying in our place. Secondly, suffering assures that we belong to Christ. It gives us assurance. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Paul warned to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter writes to Christians who are suffering, he says, If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so suffering causes believers uh, to sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And it gives us assurance of salvation. Third, suffering brings a future reward. 2 Corinthians 4, If indeed we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified with him, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I'm sorry, that's Romans chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Fourth reason for suffering, it can result in the salvation of others. The the history of the church is full of, of testimonies and accounts of those who came to Christ because they saw other believers suffering and then fifthly suffering frustrates the plans of Satan he wants suffering to harm us but we know that God always brings good out of it now this statement in verse 24 in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body which is the church in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions has been a subject of controversy and, and, and uh, debate in different commentaries and different parts of, of the church. For example, the Roman Catholics believe this is a reference to the suffering of Christians in purgatory. 
They teach that Christ's suffering wasn't enough to purge us completely of our sins. That Christians must make up what was lacking in Christ's suffering by their own suffering after death in a place called purgatory. But that can hardly be Paul's point. He just finished in this chapter earlier demonstrating that Christ alone is sufficient to reconcile us to God the Father. Paul's not adding anything to the sufferings of Christ. Not at all. The New Testament is very clear that Christ's sufferings need nothing added to them. Right before Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross, after fully taking upon himself the wrath of his Holy Father for the sins of his people, what did he say? It is finished. To Telestai. It is finished. In Jesus' death on the cross, the work of salvation was completed once for all. And so Paul's not adding anything to the atonement. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what it's talking about in the immediate context. It's not what the scriptures talk about in the content of the epistle or in the rest of the New Testament. In fact, there's no mention of purgatory at all in the Bible. It's basically made up. And finally, this word for afflictions in verse 24 here is the word flipsis. And yet you kind of have to wet your tongue before you can even say it, flipsis. It talks about afflictions. This word is never used of the sufferings of Christ on the cross. Now he goes on, he says, in my flesh. That is, he's referring to physical pain in his body, in my flesh. I'm suffering. And it's for the sake of the church, the sake of his body. He's saying that the physical pain that he endures at the hands of his persecutors is the result of what he does to benefit and to build up the body of Christ. His ministry to the body of Christ is what was causing this suffering, was causing this persecution. And so, in what sense was his suffering filling up the lack in Christ's afflictions? Well, everything that Paul was receiving in persecution was intended for Christ. Since Christ wasn't on earth any longer, the world who hates Christ hates those who follow him. And so, and since they can't attack Christ, they attack his followers instead. The harm they want to inflict on Christ, they now turn to his followers who preach his word. John fifteen eighteen, as I read earlier, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Paul wrote in Philippians 1 that I read earlier also, If it's been granted for you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. So Paul says because they hated Christ, they will hate you. And because they can't, persecute Jesus any longer because he's ascended to the Father now that he's going to attack and persecute his followers. Another way that someone wrote it is this, I take the blows for him who took all the blows for me. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 that the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. And so those who represent Christ and serve must be willing to suffer for his name. And I think the point that Paul makes throughout his testimony and the ministry 
uh, as he represents Christ in the world. It's this, that suffering weakens us, and the weaker we are, the stronger Christ is in us. I think that's an important point. It's to demonstrate that the power and the strength don't reside in us at all. It comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a vicarious suffering, a sense that we're suffering on behalf of the church, suffering on, the, on behalf of Christ, and that's for the sake of the body of the church. Number four, we must move quickly. These will go faster now. Number four, the scope of the ministry, verse 25, the scope of the ministry. He says in verse 25, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. What's Paul mean to fulfill or to carry out fully the word of God? Literally, the Greek says that I might fully carry out or fulfill the word of God. The, the words preaching of is in italics in the New American Standard. They're not in the original Greek. Those are supplied or added to help us understand. So this fully carrying out the word of God, it, it could mean that uh, the word of God in calling Paul to ministry. It could mean living out the word of God by example. It could mean teaching the word of God. And likely it means all of that. It's, it's purposely ambiguous. It includes all of the ministry, fulfilling the entire work that God has called us to do. Paul's scope was to fully fulfill and finish the ministry that God had graciously, graciously given to him, to fully teach and to fully preach the word of God and to fully live out the word of God as an example to fellow believers and even to unbelievers. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. Fulfill the word of God. Fully carry out the word of God. God called Paul to be a slave of Christ, a steward, a minister, a shepherd of God's people. And he went on three missionary trips, basically to the same places. He actually had four missionary trips, but the last one, the fourth one, was actually financed by Rome itself, right? And he went to the same places, and he had one simple message. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The first missionary trip, he went and he preached the gospel, and he established churches in Cyprus and in Pamphylia and in Galatia. The second missionary trip, he went back to the same places and strengthened the churches and appointed elders, and he extended it a little bit further into Macedonia and Achaia. And then the third missionary trip, same places, same people, same elders, and extended it even a little bit further. And then, of course, his fourth ministry was a jail ministry. But Paul had a very specific purpose in going back to those same places. He testified to the truth that God honors faithfulness and he, he blesses obedience. John MacArthur shares a little phrase that I've heard throughout the years and I think it's a very helpful phrase. He says, you take care of the depth of the ministry and God will take care of the breadth of the ministry. You be faithful where you are, where God places you, and God will take care of the breadth of the ministry. That's God's business. You do what you can do in your little place to honor God, and 
It'll go as far as God wants it to go. Acts 20, Paul says, I don't consider my life as any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. At the end of his life, he says in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Paul set himself to do God's will. He went where God called him to go, and he kept going back to those places, and he was single-minded in his devotion. He was faithful to the call of God, and God honored that faithfulness. And we here at Cornerstone, if we desire a truly effective ministry, we need to learn the importance of doing what God has called us to do in this place. We individually and corporately, we need to concentrate on the depth of the ministry here, and God will take care of its breath. And God is blessing that. We see the, the growth in the body. He's blessing the ministry. And so the scope of the ministry is to preach the whole truth to all the people in the sphere to which God has called us. Number five, the subject of the ministry. Verse 26. He says, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. The subject is the mystery which was hidden. A mystery is something that God has hidden in the past, but has now been revealed. He's made known. And there are many things in the scriptures that he makes known in the New Testament that were hidden in Old Testament times. He says that these things were hidden from the past ages and generations, but now they've been manifested to his saints. And we don't have time to look at at the different mysteries that are unfolded in the New Testament, but there are several. This word mystery, you might want to do a study on that word sometime to see how it's used in the New Testament, how God has revealed progressively his truth and his revelation. It's God's purpose that we know his truth, and that's all a part of his, his revealing his truth to us as his people. God willed to make it to his saints, make known to his saints now at the proper time the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And what was that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. Not only did Jesus come in the flesh, not only is he Emmanuel, God with us, but he also is Christ in us. That is a glorious truth. There's no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. These Jews, if you read about it in Ephesians chapter 2 and chapter 3, they were separated from Christ. They had no hope and without God in the world. And God has brought the Jew and Gentile together in one body in the church, in union together. That was, that was mind-blowing to the Jew. He couldn't grasp that at first. The early apostles had a hard time with that initially, that the Gentile could have the same position before God as the Jew in one body in the church. That's the glorious mystery revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. They would actually live in his redeemed body, made up mostly of Gentiles. 
And the New Testament is very clear that by the Holy Spirit, Christ takes up permanent residence in all believers. All believers. Not just a special elite group as some of the false teachers would teach. The church is described as the temple of the living God. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that hope of glory speaks not just of the present situation in our lives, that Christ is in us, but also that future hope of glory, that eternal bliss that we will experience, that guarantee of the future that we find in heaven, in the presence of Christ. Number six, the style of the ministry. The style of the ministry. What do we do and how do we do it in ministry? Verse 28. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says we, com- we proclaim him. That means to herald. It means to, to proclaim to speak out. It's a very general term. It, it talks about a, it speaks of a town crier who comes into a city and gives an announcement. This was obviously before printing presses, before books or before internet or anything like that. It was a public proclamation. You have this messenger and he gives a message. He proclaims it. And we as God's people are proclaimers of a message. So we proclaim what? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Him, right? It's public. It's a proclamation. And this proclamation includes two aspects. It says admonishing and teaching. Admonishing and teaching. Admonishing is from the word nuthateo. It speaks of encouraging counsel in view of sin and coming judgment. It could be translated counseling. It literally means to put in mind. It includes the idea of warning, of counseling, of admonishing, of exhorting. It's the responsibility of elders. In Acts 20, verse 31, Paul describes his ministry at Ephesus. He says, night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. But it's also the responsibility of every one of us as believers. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another. So if there's sin in the life of a fellow believer, it's our responsibility to lovingly, gently admonish them to forsake that sin. Teaching every man. It refers to imparting positive truth. It's a responsibility, once again, for all of us as believers. It's part of the Great Commission. We heard that recently, didn't we? Teaching. And that's the pattern that Paul used, teaching and admonishment. Doctrinal teaching leads to practical living, right? We can't live right unless we know right first, right? And that must be the pattern for all of our ministries. 
Number seven. There are two more. Number seven, the sum of the ministry. The sum of the ministry. That's S-U-M. Sum of the ministry. What's the goal of ministry? Why do we do what we do here at Cornerstone? Why do you do in your what why do you do what you do in your personal life in serving Christ? He says at the end of verse 28 that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the purpose. That's the sum of the ministry. And God has a lot of work to still do in all of us. I know he certainly has a lot of work to do still in me. And I'm sure you feel the same way. We got a long way to go. But that was Paul's goal to present every man complete in Christ. Down in chapter 2 of Colossians, it says that we've been made complete in Christ. And I believe that speaks of our position in Christ. The moment that we're saved, the moment that we're united to Christ, we are positionally complete. We have everything in Christ. So we see that we're presented by Christ up in chapter 1, verse 22. We are presented before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's the final outcome of our, of our salvation. That's yet future. Positionally, we are complete, but practically, we still have a long way to go. That's progressive sanctification. We're growing in Christ's likeness. And Paul says it's his goal to present every man complete in Christ. That's the work to be done. The goal is to admonish and to teach with all wisdom, it says in verse 28, all wisdom, because we have not yet reached that goal. That word for complete is teleos. It means to be complete, to be perfect, to be mature. Growth and maturity in Christ. That was Paul's goal. And here we see the vital importance of the Word of God. We admonish, we teach, we fulfill the Word of God in our lives because it's through the Word of God that people come to faith in Christ and it's through the Word of God that men and women are made complete and matured and equipped for every good work. And we'll move on just to finish. Our last point, number eight, the strength of the ministry. Verse 29, And for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The strength of the ministry. Who can do what Paul is saying to do here in their own strength? Nobody. He says, For this purpose I labor. That word labor there means to toil, to work to the point of sweat, to the work to the point of exhaustion. And the word striving It's the word agonizomai. We get the word agonize from, agony. It's used in a wrestling match. When you have someone that you're wrestling, an opponent, you're wrestling, you're striving, you're exhausting yourselves with agonizing effort. But then there's this parallel truth, according to his power which mightily works within me. And that there is the strength of the ministry. Christ and his power working in me. In ministry, we labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion. We agonize, but alongside that effort of ours, we find the power that mightily works within us, the power of Christ. And that's 
Again, Philippians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we see those, those two parallel truths all throughout Scripture. We repent, we believe, we trust in Christ, but it's the work of God. We must obey, we must worship God to be sanctified, but it's God doing that work in us. We have to persevere to the end, but it's God who keeps us to the end. We minister with all of our energy, with all of our strength, with all of our power, and yet it's not our power, but it's the power of God in us. And so we come full circle. The source of our ministry is also the strength of our ministry. It is God himself. Those are the eight aspects of ministry. There's a lot there, and... um, Thank you for your attention and your patience with me as I went a little long. Um, I knew I was going to struggle with six verses. So I hope that this has been helpful to you and um, that we see these things in our lives. And the view that Paul has of ministry would also be our view of ministry, not only for ourselves as individuals, but as the body of Christ here at Cornerstone, that we might serve the Lord for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us everything in Christ that we need for life and godliness. We thank you, Father, for equipping us with everything we need to serve you and to worship you and to glorify you. Lord, thank you for saving us and for calling us to serve you. It's a great grace and a great mercy. Lord, I pray that as we look at these aspects of ministry, as we think about our responsibilities in ministry, we ask for your help. And we thank you for such a high and and holy privilege. May Jesus be exalted in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.